0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Beverly Cloth. Her book today is The Spaces of Mental Capacity Law, Moving Beyond Binaries and it was published by Routledge in 2022. I'll let you, I'll let her tell you more about herself. Um, So Dr. Beverly Cloth, welcome to the show. Hi. 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 just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Spaces of Mental Capacity Law, Moving Beyond Binaries?
1: Yeah, um. so my background really is in medical law and bioethics, um, and I guess I've got a particular interest in feminist approaches, uh, particularly in the context of mental capacity law, um, and I think, you know, as so I, I kind of did a little bit more Um, reading and kind of writing around mental capacity law, there were kind of two things that really stuck out to me in this area. Um, One was this really curious absence of disability and disability studies in mental capacity scholarship. Um, And it seemed really striking given the particular um, groups of people who are kind of the, the, the primary focus of mental capacity law. Um, so that seems strange to me Um, and also secondly I think there was in kind of bioethics and feminist bioethics but also in this mental capacity context there's a lot of critique of autonomy um, and this kind of huge body of scholarship on relational autonomy um, you know and calls for rethinking and recognizing care interdependence as part of that Uh, but I often found that other Concepts that were linked to autonomy were less kind of rigorously challenged, and they were sort of um, seem to me to be a little bit more taken for granted. So um, paternalism, for example, often um, is kind of un- uncritically deployed um, mm-hmm. in these discussions. So it seems there's a lot around autonomy, but less so around the other concepts that it's linked to. Um, and I think really in this area, the the UNCRPD has been a really kind of injected this um, invitation, really, to, to begin to rethink things a little bit more broadly than just simply autonomy, um, and really to think about disability as as a big part of um, capacity and agency and legal capacity. So it's really provided this kind of critical impetus. So for me, it's been this it, you know this time where I've I've come from this kind of feminist bioethical backgrounds and you know my work on mental capacity law but the CRPDs injected this this need to rethink it through things like um disability positive obligations um and yeah so I was very fortunate to get an ISRF early career um fellowship which gave me um this year of just really immersing myself in um, disability studies literature, um, in literature in human geography and legal geography, and you know the kind of new materialist like science and technology studies literature, and just to really try and open up um some of these debates in mental capacity law. Um, inspired, I guess, by the CRPD, but not necessarily totally wedded to the CRPD.
0: I found that um so striking in your book I mean it wasn't you know I come from I do some research on the CRPD and it's this idea of human geography and legal geography wasn't something that I was really familiar with maybe you can tell me and the listeners a little bit more about this and how it sort of relates to your book
1: yeah so for me I think when I started to think about the CRPD and to think about the Mental Capacity Act it was almost this really striking, almost physical move of people into these separate realms of a capacitous subject or an incapacitous subject, and when you know that this real striking binary there, it's one of the more obvious ones that I talk about. Um, but it's it's as I say, it's this kind of physical moving of somebody into this realm of incapacity, and. Uh, what then happens what are the kind of logics that frame how you know how we how law responds to them how the state responds in that situation and it seemed to me a real instance of boundary drawing um, and kind of shaping these boundaries of responsibility and accountability um, so the you know just looking through a lot of the legal geography literature, and also a lot of the human geography literature, particularly in disability studies, it's, you get this really strong sense of these processes of boundary drawing. Um, what they, you know, how that helps to draw lines around responsibility, how that helps to also shape the subject as well and kind of legal subjectivity. Um, and I think that this provided a really interesting and useful for me framing to, to start to think about these issues through. Um, because I think when I started to look at these binaries and how they are so connected and so reliant upon each other. Um, it was really helpful to see how you can then begin to challenge some of them and to trace how they've been created um, and why they are so pervasive and why they are so kind of, the seen as common sense, The seen as, you know, this is just the way that it is laid out. Um, and this, you know, this is the way that the law should be. And I think, you know, legal geography teaches us to think about it as more of a process. Um, and they have been, Created in these ways, it, you know, it's not just the kind of discovery of spaces; it's this creation of spaces, and why and who, and who's kind of had the role in creating those spaces, and the power issues sort that of are kind of at the centre of that.
0: There's like there's so much I want to unpick about that, um, but just sort of coming back to the firstly coming back to the main theme of the book, and you know, moving this idea of moving beyond binaries. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed your framing of the law's response to mental capacity as positioned in this sort of series of binaries. Can you tell me more about where this came from and sort of how it worked throughout the book as well?
1: Yeah, Um, so I think one that I've mentioned a little bit already is this autonomy paternalism binary and that's that was really the starting point for me and that you know a lot of my earlier work and um you know when I was doing my master's and my PhD and looking at relational autonomy and feminist bioethics this seemed to be a big framing um binary around you know how do we respond to um individuals in a medical context it's you know if we start to encroach on their decision making then that that's virgin and paternalistic and paternalism is this kind of bad thing to be um avoided it's set up in this kind of direct opposition to respecting people's autonomy um so i mean that's really traced through as well into the mental capacity act and i think you know there's no I talk in a book about how a lot of the mental capacity, um, the work around the development of the Mental Capacity Act really seem to occur at the same time as this kind of heyday of autonomy and bioethics and that kind of the big rise in autonomy as a, a leading principle in bioethics. Um, you know, you can really trace that through the Law Commission's work and how autonomy and paternalism are, are positioned in that. But I think what's really striking when you start to dig down in the Mental Capacity Act is how other binary frameworks are really carefully interwoven with that autonomy paternalism binary and they're kind of mutually dependent on each other and they mutually sustain each other. Um, So things like empowerment versus protection and you often see this in I mean, most discussions of mental capacity law that I see, it's, you know, it's, are we empowering or are we protecting? Um, and it, it's often just kind of trotted out as a, as a sort of mantra. Um, and I think I'm in, intrigued really as to what, what else is allowed or not allowed to be included as part of that consideration. We've got the public-private divide, which I talk about in, in the book as well, and it's a kind of long-standing feminist legal um, preoccupation with this public-private divide and what it does, um, you know, tying into ideas about the state and the individual, but also I think disability um, and non-disability, which, as I've already said, I think it's it's slightly remarkable that disability wasn't it's not really been engaged with much in the kind of the earlier mental capacity work um I think David Carson's work in the kind of early 90s is a you know a, a counterpoint to that but otherwise there's not been a very strong critical um approach to disability and that kind of disability non-disability binary that we see um but I think what What's interesting is how, as I said, these binaries all seem to shape these kind of logics of mental capacity law and they are so dependent on each other um, and I think this, you know, one, one of the things that I'm wanting to do with the book, kind of, as I said, inspired in some ways by the CRPD and the way it invites us to start to tear apart some of these binaries and to unpick them and to look at things from a different perspective Um. Is really to, to encourage scholars to recognize that we might be able to chip away at one side of one of these binaries. So, for example, we can focus a lot of our, our attention on critiquing autonomy, but we also have to be very mindful about what that is also entangled with. Um, and, it, you know, if we do start to chip away at one of these binaries, or at least half of one of these binaries, other binaries might be shored up Um, and that can uh, you know that can have um unforeseen consequences it could have deeply problematic consequences um you know so it's just this awareness of how they how they link together how those links have been created and how those boundaries have been drawn over time that's so interesting um so perhaps maybe you could tell me
0: um coming back to one of your earlier points tell me more about this process of boundary drawing drawing um, especially with regards to like label geography?
1: Yeah, so I think that in the book, there's quite a few of these kind of binaries that I talk about as I've just mentioned. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I I start to think about in the book is how, you know, who is part of these processes of boundary drawing and what, what do these boundaries do? Um, so it's not just through um, judicial reiteration, but I think this is one of the, the things I focus on through looking at the, the judgments of the court of protection. Um, but to look at the ways that judges will see themselves as not, um, not creating law, not shaping law, and they kind of just see themselves as discovering these kind of pre-existing boundaries that we have. Um, and I think in... But chapter seven, when I talk about the public private divide, I look at this in quite a bit of detail as to how, um, you know, in law, we don't necessarily see ourselves as part of the, the drawing of boundaries. But actually, these judicial reiterations of things like the public private divide or of things like autonomy versus paternalism, these are part of these processes of Entrenching, re entrenching, maintaining these boundaries and these binaries, and just really shoring up these logics that, that, that they're all entangled with. And so, this relates
0: to another point you just made. You talked about who is part of the process and what do these processes do. But then, earlier, you also talked about the way that these processes, um, you know, it is shored up in judgments and law way that these shape legal subjectivity can you talk a little bit more about this concept of legal subjectivity and you know through the processes and what sort of happens and what does legal subjectivity look like especially in the context of your book
1: yeah so I think um it as a, as a starting point for my work with the book and, it you know, alongside many kind of feminist legal scholars, I was concerned with the way that um, we have this kind of liberal legal subjectivity, which is tied to um, this kind of abstract, individualistic, unencumbered, masculine um, subject. Um, you know, there's nothing necessarily new or remarkable there, um, but I think it's... It, For me, it's interesting to think about how that features in the mental capacity framework. Um, And you can see it very strongly in the way that capacity is assessed. And I think people like to think of the Mental Capacity Act as this kind of politically neutral um, legal framework that's, you know, it's just about this objective test of someone's mental capacity and their best interests, but it's, you can see just through this, the way that mental capacity and the assessment of capacity is framed, that there's a particular legal subject that is um, envisaged by the legal framework. So it is about this kind of rational, autonomous individual. The focus is on the individual's best interests. And this is really kind of (laughs) tied into this, the work that I think disability uh, studies scholars have done about how disability is created and crafted as the other. Um, and it kind of reinforces this normative idea of um, what the kind of liberal subject is and should be. Um, and Disability is seen as the other to that, that can and I think you can really see this strongly with the Mental Capacity Act and how um, the incapacitous individual is kind of shifted into this realm of the other, Um, whereas the capacitous individual embodies exactly, you know, this ideal liberal legal subject, the kind of thinking, rational, autonomous um, person. And this is really kind of reinforced throughout, different parts of the mental capacity act um so again we see in terms of the kind of state individual um binary that we see and that that really kind of creates this idea again of the state shouldn't intervene in this autonomous individual's life there's only certain circumstances in which it's okay for them to do so um and the state is kind of positioned as this separate separate entity that hasn't, hasn't had a role in that individual's life. The the kind of there, I I kind of envisage it as a state as kind of hovering over, but not actually involved um, unless we can move this individual into this realm of the other and then the state can intervene. Um, So I think just even though we're not necessarily Thinking about legal subjectivity, I think we get a strong sense of the ideal liberal legal subject coming through. Um, And I think disability studies and um, particularly the kind of human geography literature that engages Mm -hmm. with disability studies is really useful for, for legal scholars in this area, actually, to think about how law is part of these kind of processes of disability. Um, and it's not this kind of neutral process. Again, That's just kind of discovering these spaces and creating categories, um, but it's, it's having a, a role in um, reinforcing ideals of, um, you know, the ideal subject, the disabled subject, and um, you have responsibility as, as kind of part of that.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And your book really does challenge this idea of, you know, these sort of binaries And law itself as being inherently neutral, because I think what comes through in all of these concepts, you know, um, and, you know, it can be argued even reading the CRPD that these sort of concepts like autonomy um, are actually neutral and, you know, the legal subject is objectively neutral. But sort of, you know, one of the key takeaways from your book and one of the key challenges that it presents is that actually these sort of common sense binaries are not in fact um, necessarily so common sense or should be accepted at all. They shouldn't just be sort of assumed to be neutral. Um, I mean, if I have no other takeaway from your book, I mean, I do have many, but one of the key takeaways you just said um, is that this idea of the state shouldn't you know, isn't permitted to intervene unless a person is sort of categorised as the other. And that it's you know, so, so interesting the way that the law does this. So I guess then perhaps this is a good time to ask you, um, you know, your second chapter is titled The Conceptual Terrain, Spatial Dynamics and the Law. I'm interested to know, um, you know, and also with your background, talking about your background of bioethics and feminist studies, so then how does space construct networks of power? Yeah,
1: a big question. Um, <laughs> lots of, yeah, I guess there's a few ways that I could think about this. Um, but a big part of it, I guess, for me is in terms of how, how space is used to draw these boundaries around responsibility um, and accountability. I think and this is one of the things that has been most striking um, in in kind of thinking through the book and reading the cases through this particular um, lens that I've I've been kind of thinking through, um, because the way that these boundaries are drawn around the individual and the state has a. It's not just about creating the kind of legal subject and uh, reinforcing the idea legal subject, but it's also about limiting um state responsibility mm-hmm. often um and obscuring the the role that the state and institutions have already had in people's lives um and in creating those situations of inequality or oppression or disadvantage. Um, it's a, often about invisibilizing the state. Um, and I think this is kind of big part of the way that power is it's kind of shifted through these these networks and these kind of spatial um, designations. And I think it's really interesting to think about things like the the social model of disability through through this lens. Um, And I really do hope that there's this kind of more attention in kind of disability studies to the role of law. I don't think there's necessarily always been I think generally, and I think I do talk about this actually in the book right at the beginning, I think generally there is a law is seen as this very kind of black letter doctrinal um, <laughs> creature to to those in other disciplines. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I really hope that comes from the book is that if it is read by people in different disciplines, that there might be um, more engagement with the the way that law has got a really important Role to play in um, things like, you know, the in the social model of disability, um, but it, just in terms of thinking about um, these kind of what space is doing and what these spatial processes are doing, thinking about it through the social model of disability, I really see it's about kind of closing off the idea that the state has um, has or should have any role actually responding to um, impairment, or that it hasn't, it's kind of denying its role in the creation of disability. Um, And I talk a little little bit in the book about um, the kind of Cheshire West case, certainly when it was in the Court of Appeal, um, and um, Lord Justice Mumby's discussion of the relevant comparator when it comes to deciding on whether or not someone's been deprived of their liberty. And this idea of the, in defining a deprivation of liberty, who are we kind of comparing that in relation to? And this really striking idea that he had that it's um, about comparing their situation to other people like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the way that it was phrased in that case. Um, Hugely problematic. But for me, that really tied into this individualized model of disability as being this kind of internal limiting factor on someone's life that the state just had no role in. Um, And you really see that coming through in other chapters that um, in the book when I do look a little bit more at Liberty and the kind of the, the philosophical approaches to disability and Liberty. And again, this real, um, the way that disability is envisaged through this is really problematic. But to me, it it's a total denial of the state's role as part of disability. Um, And it's about the way that these boundaries are drawn around who the individual is, who the state is, where, when and when they can, um, when and where, sorry, they can, um, (laughs) there is, you know, when and where interventions can happen. um, And totally ignoring the historical role of the state and institutions in creating that the situation at that point in time that the law is is focused on. So then picking up on this point about the
0: CRPD and especially the social model of disabilities, um, through your analytical lens, do you feel that the CRPD does break down or at least attempt to break down these sorts of binaries or does it almost reinforce this concept of black letter doctrinal law
1: I think I think it's a really good question um, certainly my approach has been that it provides this kind of critical impetus to think about it differently mm-hmm. and it's almost like it's turning these logics of mental capacity law on their head um, so I think a lot of the scholarly work particularly in the mental capacity context has been on article 12 of the crpd um, and this right to legal capacity on an equal basis with others and i you know the reason that i think there's been so much attention to that is because it just totally goes against the grain of the the legal framework that we've all been working in and thinking through um and it is a real challenge to try to get our heads out of that and to think how it might look differently if um, if we were to try and, you know, think about a legal framework that is compliant or totally compliant with that. Um, and you see these concerns about if we were to give, you know, to say that people had legal capacity on an equal basis with others and everyone um, has this kind of equal right to um, support to exercise that legal capacity what might that look like would it be you know would it be driven by a framework that denies people legal capacity or would it be driven by a framework that says the state won't intervene in anyone's decision making Mm -hmm. um my concern has been that some of those interpretations have been so driven by the framework that we've already got that you know we're kind of being driven down these dead ends in thinking and you know we're hitting up against the same binaries that are part of the mental capacity legal framework and and i don't think that there's been necessarily a full kind of open assessment of right you know we take the mental capacity act out of it we shouldn't be driven by that pre-existing framework because that's explicitly built on the idea that people with cognitive impairments can be seen as lacking mental capacity which is then used as a denial of legal capacity um and i think really that was what drove me to write the book is i was you know it, it was like the mental capacity Act is this common sense framework and that is the kind of static legal landscape that we have to work with and let's try and inject the article 12 or inject the CRPD into that um whereas I think for me it's about allowing ourselves to have that logic turned on its head and to see you know to see where that takes us um but I do I do get that the you know some Mm -hmm. of the criticism of um the Committee on the CRPD and some of the, the criticism that they haven 't necessarily you know they 've given some very strong assertions about what Article 12 might look like, but not necessarily address the concerns that some people have had about what would that mean um, in terms of potentially leaving people in abusive situations mm-hmm. or um, removing protection for them. Um, I guess for me. <sighs> my my approach has been to see the crpd more as a whole and not just to hinge everything on capacity um because i think again that that allows that is us being driven by the mental capacity framework and um not necessarily taking a step back and thinking perhaps about all the other articles of the convention and how they play a really important role in themselves supporting legal capacity and supporting legal agency, such to the point that we might not need that question about um, mm-hmm. capacity and incapacity there. But I think it opens up so many really interesting questions. Um, I know when I talk to the kind of undergraduates on the, you know, on the medical law modules about article 12 and what it might mean is, you know, is it about disability neutrality? Can we have disability neutrality in these kind of legal frameworks? Um, But for me, I think that idea of on an equal basis with others is really crucial because it really takes away that focus that we've got at the moment, which is about separating individuals and saying you're a capacitous individual, you're an incapacitous individual based on disability or non-disability. It really gets us to move away from that um, and there are lots of different directions I think that that could take us in legally, um, but again, we need to be really mindful of these other these other binaries that those are tied up with, but also about the as I say the other articles of the the UNCRPD and what they also are signalling about the role of the state and an intervention.
0: Yeah, there's so much like so much there. It's sort of On the one hand, I think you're saying, you know, we can't be limited by the binaries that we've come to be used to and not almost become blind to seeing, like, for example, in the Mental Capacity Act. At the same time, you know, the scholarship from the UNCRPD does focus on this idea of equality before the law present in Article 12. Um, And it's almost as if, you know, this as you just said, you know, Article 12 is being fed into these existing systems and what we actually need to do is move beyond that and perhaps Mm. question further um, these binaries and sort of, it's almost a bit unsettling um, for lawyers, I think. Yeah. Um, It's, I also found really interesting, so you talked about this and gave sort of, I wouldn't say suggestions, but sort of contextualise all of this in um, other theories of, for example, vulnerability and relational lens um, as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the vulnerability literature would like add to all of this.
1: Yeah, so I've done, um, in the past I've done quite a lot of work with vulnerability theory and thinking about it in relation to disability and mental capacity. And I think it's a really useful starting point actually for um getting us to think particularly about this idea of on an equal basis with others because I think with vulnerability theory um it's very much focused on the universal vulnerability so not kind of hiving off different categories of individual that should have you know a particular legal framework applied to them um as a necessary starting point it's about normalizing and seeing interdependence and care for example as part of um everyone's lives and turning that idea of this rational individualistic legal subject on its head um, so i think that in itself gives a really interesting starting point and i can certainly see some parallels with the know with the social model of disability but also with the CRPD because the CRPD is obviously very much rooted in in the social model and quite explicitly. Um, So it then with vulnerability theory obviously we need to think about vulnerability as universal but also as particular. So the experience of that vulnerability um is experienced in particular ways given someone's social context so it gets us to you know it's not about saying everyone's vulnerable so treat them the same um it's about being really attentive then to the particular kind of social environmental political context that that person um is residing in so i think you know that is it, it does give some really important insights to the CRPD, but also Article 12, um, in that it's not necessarily saying, and this, my reading of the article 12 has always been that it's not necessarily saying you need to then you know if we're treating um, legal capacities on an equal basis with others, that's not necessarily saying we then need to kind of step back and not intervene in anyone's decision-making. And I think, you know, the the vulnerability theory can be really helpful in in thinking that through um, because there is a danger that you then, you know, you can reinforce the individualistic Mm -hmm. reading of mental capacity law um, and the the kind of liberal legal subject through that. And I think that is exactly what is to be avoided. Um, And I don't think that a, a kind of true if there is such a thing um but a kind of careful reading of the crp doesn't necessitate that at all mm-hmm. um so yeah oh so th- yeah i think um in that sense vulnerability theory's got a lot of tools there and i think the other part of vulnerability theory it's not just about you know defining vulnerability um, and i think martha Fineman's mm-hmm. kind of quite clear that you know that's not the point to get caught up on. The point is about the responsive state and institutions. Um, And I think, you know, again, there's tools there to think about how the state might be configured differently if it was built on the idea of the vulnerable legal subject rather than the liberal legal subjects. How might institutions be configured? Um, and in this context, how might law and you know the kind of legal frameworks like mental capacity law be configured differently if we weren't starting from the idea of incapacitous individuals with cognitive impairments being in this kind of separate legal realm um, and kind of shoring up the idea of the capacitous autonomous subject? How might the how might these be? differently configured so I think vulnerability theory's got quite a lot of interesting tools there for us to think about this um I guess where I not necessarily depart but I think this room to think it through more carefully here is to think not and I think this is where the kind of the spatial literature is really interesting um, and useful is in really carefully seeing how um. Why we have got to the current configuration of the state and institutions through that legal framework, and how they're all working together. So it's kind of that historical, um, kind of temporal understanding of how they're how they're very closely intertwined. So that thinking very carefully about responses, um, and coming back to the idea that it's it's often. Um, it's not necessarily straightforward as just, you know, a kind of tweak here and there to the terminology and the Mental Capacity Act or, um, you know, it's much more of a kind of wholesale um, holistic rethinking about that those institutional kind of structural relations and how they can be configured differently.
0: Yeah, and I think in her scholarship, Camilia Cole um, picks up on this critique of, The idea or of Article 12 being interpreted in this um, non-interventionist sort of way, um, and thinking about whether or not that actually does protect autonomy. um, And if this sort of concept of autonomy is actually um, something that is worthy of protection and to sort of draw out that it's not actually neutral. Uh Um, This relates, I think, to the next part of the book. perhaps overlaps, you could say. So the next sort of binary is that of care and disability. You position those. That's a really interesting sort of contrast because it's not, you know, I guess it's not how the sort of legal framework necessarily is assumed to position care and disability in binaries. So why do you position care and disability as binaries?
1: Yeah, so I I think with this, it's really stemming from the work in disability studies, Um, So. I mean, just to kind of take a step back um, with my own work, I I started thinking about the role of carers and where carers were in mental capacity law and how um, really kind of critiquing the mental capacity through a care ethics lens. Um, So in thinking about the best interest assessment, for example, um, it's a very, it's very much focused on the individual lacking capacity, at least on the face of the Mental Capacity Act. So it's it's not about someone else's best interests. Um, it's it's just about um that individual's best interest. And carers and kind of informal carers and family are there just as kind of ways to understand a little bit more about that individual's best interest. It's not about um the relationship as a whole or what you know what legal response might best facilitate that kind of care relationship. Um, and then in my, my kind of next project, when I was looking at thinking about the social model of disability, there was a real challenge in the disability studies literature to ideas of care. And I really hit up against this kind of barrier that care ethics and disability studies had quite an uneasy history. Um, and I think some of this, from looking into um, a lot of the writing in that area, particularly in the kind of 80s and 90s, um, it stemmed from a lot of the kind of feminist care ethics work around the way that deinstitutionalization kind of, <laughs> it was framed as kind of <laughs> creating a, a burden on informal carers and family carers, um, and tying this to um, these kind of broader critiques of how responsibility was privatized into these kind of domestic spaces, rather than the state kind of recognizing their responsibility. So it was was this kind of physical moving of disabled people from institutions into the community, which actually translated often Um, as into domestic spaces, it privatized responsibility, privatized dependency, Um, and the kind of feminist care ethics literature around that time was very critical of this. Um, But at the same time, there was a kind of the big kind of disability studies critique, that independent living movement was a big part of that drive to deinstitutionalization, And so there was this real clash. And also in the disability study movement, there was a real Um, concern about care, Um, disabled people didn't want to be seen as objects of care they wanted to be subjects in their own right Um, and you know care was seen as um, a kind of demeaning practice and it wasn't about it wasn't about care for disabled people; it was about their independence. Um, so there was—it's kind of been positioned as this clash between care and disability. Um, and I think you know, I think it's something that the the CRPD needs to tread carefully with as well, um, because I think there is a slight risk with the CRPD that um, the role of carers and the role of others in disabled people's lives is almost. Minimised, and I think there's a concern um in the, the kind of care ethics literature about what this might translate to and whether carers become just seen as these conduits for disabled people to provide um their agency whereas carers agency can be um further undermined and I think for me I think what I've found is that the, the kind of the kernels within both of these theories are very much the same Um, so care theory and disability studies are very much about interdependence relationality and the kind of independent living movement in disability studies was never about people just saying they want to be left alone and it was never about this kind of individualistic liberal subject Um, it was about the kind of provision of resources to facilitate people's independence and um, it's you know it, it, it's a very different um emphasis there and i think both care theory and disability studies are, are very much focused on the provision of um resources and support um so I think there's there's been a kind of tendency, there's almost been a caricature, I think, around care and disability studies that has prevented this useful um, alliance that there could be in terms of, for me, a broader challenging of, um, again, coming back to responsibility and accountability in the role of the state. Um, so I think, yeah, th- what I've been trying to do in that chapter is to draw attention to that kind of, and recognize those the kind of previous theoretical antagonisms that they've been and but to really to draw out the the alliances that can be drawn there um, and the resources from both of the approaches that aren't necessarily um antithetical but that both actually really push towards this recognition of our embeddedness within um these kind of networks and resource networks and really pushing against any moves to to privatize dependence and responsibility either within disabled people or within kind of care spaces there's honestly so much more I could
0: ask you but I do see we're running out of time just before you go I'm wondering if you can tell me do you have any key takeaways and also our um famous last question for the new books network what are you working on now
1: yeah so I guess there's um well, I think two things that I I hope come from the book. Um, one is really about being very careful. Um, when we're thinking about legal reform in this area, um, and just a kind of think through how um, proposals for reform will. It will kind of link to these binaries and, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, I think there's often a risk that if we kind of just chip away and solely focus on one, then that means that the other binaries tend to get shored up um, in, in a way to kind of maintain that legal framework and that kind of internal coherence that is built around the, that legal framework. So I think it's really about being very careful um, and being attentive to these wider, uh, the kind of the widest, the context of mental capacity law um, and I think one of the things that I mentioned in the conclusion actually is that it may be that new binaries pop up and um, you know can, can we have a legal framework that isn't is there something kind of as part of law that means that it has to work in these kind of binary ways and um, I think Margaret Davies work is really good for getting us to think about law and you know law unlimited and um, but I, I think at least, even if we do have these new binaries pop up, we have, we can understand them and we are being attentive to them um, as part of these legal reform processes, uh, rather than um, just seeing them as necessarily kind of a fixed part of the the legal landscape. Um, I think I also hope that people take a hopeful message from the book. I think that, you know, there is quite a lot of um, kind of critical commentary on the Mental Capacity Act. But I think one of the things that I'm really hoping to, to signal, um, particularly through through thinking in terms of legal geography and these processes is that these frameworks and these logics are inherently unstable um, and that they can be changed but um, you know if we can map or begin to map these binaries and how they work together and how you know the different kind of institutional and structural relations that these sustain then I think it gives us actually um, some more kind of critical tools for thinking about different sites for legal change and different sites for kind of um progressive reform attention um that aren't simply just hinged to things like autonomy Um, and i think it actually opens up hopefully um some some new um perspectives on where we can start to challenge Um, and it might even be very small very small shifts um, that actually have some of the, the the bigger kind of consequences here um oh yeah and so what am I working on now um if, I, I think a couple of things that stem most immediately from the book one is thinking about temporality um and there is a huge and um, growing body of particularly social legal literature on temporality in law um and I think the mental capacity context provides a really interesting case study for this um some of the points in the book um I think talk about this kind of linear progressive um, temporality that we see in some of the mental capacity cases, um, the WMA case that I talk about in the care and disability chapter, um, and this idea of this kind of progressive move through to adulthood um, and this increase in autonomy and independence that ought to come with that and how that is kind of pressed down onto um, kind of non-conforming relationships between parents um, and their disabled children. Um, but I also think the, the temporality abroad broader kind of in terms of the, the whole way that the legal framework works and actually how that jars with the very different temporality that I think we have in the CRPD and I wonder whether this is part of why um, when scholars and um, policymakers and practitioners are trying to think through ways that we can make mental capacity law compatible with the CRPD I think the very different temporality of how um, interventions are seen and um, the role of the state is seen in, in these two different frameworks is part of why there seems to be such a clash Um, and then the second thing that i've been kind of thinking about for a couple of years now is home um, and how that really comes through in the the work around liberty and disability in a home and the way that home and domestic spaces are seen as these sites where um dependency and care is privatised and this responsibility is kind of shifted and um, so I'm doing some work thinking about law and home through a kind of spatial legal geography lens um, at a kind of broader level and then kind of funnelling that down into thinking about the implications for mental capacity law um, and disability and uh, concepts like liberty as well.
0: Yeah and I mean you've given some really sort of inspiring um, paths for research there. And I can't wait to read more of what you do. Um, And it's always, it's always so good to end on a hopeful note because, you know, a lot of, a lot of this work isn't always so hopeful. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's that's brilliant. Um, Just to finish off today. um, Firstly, thank you so much, Dr. Beverly Clough for being on the show. It's really great. Um, I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking with Dr. Beverly Cloth about her book, The Spaces of Mental Capacity Law, Moving Beyond Binaries*. It was published by Routledge in 2022. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Bev, thanks for your time. Thanks.